And this is Studio Two. Welcome in. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. From SCOTUS to Abe Lincoln to pedestrian safety. We have a packed show today, Avi. Pack, pack. NPR Steve Enskeep will join us to talk about his new book, Differ We Must. It's about what President Abraham Lincoln did to succeed in a very divided America and what it can teach us in 2023. We're also talking about trust in the U.S. Supreme Court. We're packing the show. We're not yeah. packing the court today, Cherry. No. But the nine <laughs> justices have now adopted an official code of conduct. Mm-hmm. It is a little tough to parse what it means and if it will actually sway public opinion and speaking of public opinion we want to hear from you on mm-hmm. both of these topics you know steve inskeep send us your questions for him we also want to know what you think about the supreme court and your trust in that institution give us a call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at org. also avi we have whyy reporter aaron moselle standing by to talk about hit and run incidents in philly especially with the recent injury of Sixers' Kelly Oubre Jr. But first, we're going to dig into the news. You got the shovel first, man. Well, we just heard in the newscast about Kevin Hart. The breaking news, yeah, yeah. getting the uh, the Mark Twain Prize. Congratulations, so congratulations to, to Philly's, Philly's own, own Kevin yeah. Hart. We, we're not planning to talk about that, but he's a Philly guy and uh, one of the city's great exports to the world of entertainment and comedy. Again, congratulations, Kevin Hart. Pretty cool. Now, politics. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the politics of the past with Steve Inskeep, but the politics of the present very much on our mind this morning. We had talked earlier about a potential U.S. Senate run by First Lady of New Jersey, Tammy Murphy. And this morning, she said this. Right now, Washington is filled with too many people more interested in getting rich or getting on camera than getting things done for you. I'm Tammy Murphy, and I'm ready to work every single day in the United States Senate for you, your family, and our country. Nothing ambiguous about that. After a lot of speculation, Tammy Murphy is running for the U.S. Senate in New Jersey. This is the seat currently held by Bob Menendez, who faces several indictments and may or may not be running for re-election. Also of note, Rep. Andy Kim, who represents some folks in our area, uh, is also running for that seat, all in the Democratic Party. Of course, Democrats are typically favored to Mm -hmm. win U.S. Senate seats in New Jersey, but there will be a Republican challenger as well. So much more to come on this very intriguing race, Cherry. Yeah, very interesting. Besides being the wife of Governor Phil Murphy for 30 years, Tammy Murphy, she's 58, mother of four, first-time candidate for public office. So this is a big office to run for. Uh, She describes herself on her tax forms as a homemaker. But during the six years her husband has been governor, she has been very active as first lady Um, she has been working on to deal with um, uh, maternal and infant mortality rates in New Jersey also climate change has been a big issue Um, and before she got married she was a financial analyst and has since volunteered on nonprofit and philanthropic boards and has been very active in New Jersey and she's called serving as first lady the honor of a lifetime so we'll see how she does yeah, she's looking for the new honor of a lifetime, I guess, now. the senator, Senate. yeah. But uh, so you, you mentioned her resume. Mm-hmm. It also includes, and this is going to become an issue, it's already becoming an issue, it also includes the fact that she voted regularly in Republican primaries mm-hmm. until 2014. Some opponents are already mentioning that. She hasn't really sort of addressed it yet because the campaign is just getting going. But we talked yesterday on the show about 
how important party loyalty is in a two-party system. And so this, I think, is going to be a pivot point, whether she can sort of uh, maybe turn this into a strength or mm-hmm. perhaps it becomes the weakness that sinks her campaign. We shall see. We shall see. And we'll be watching uh, that race. Something else we're going to be watching here in Philadelphia is how they're dealing with 911 responses. Philadelphia City Council held a hearing on Tuesday about the 911 response team and changes in procedures and staffing. Uh, PPD has directed 911 call takers to ask additional questions of callers about the location of their emergencies. Yeah. This all comes after that botched 911 response call and uh, in response that preceded a mass shooting in King Sessing in Southwest Philly over the summer yep. in July. If you yep. remember that, Avi, I do. We yeah. talked about it on the show. In that case, uh, the 911 dispatchers got a call about a shooting and sent police to the wrong address and they didn't find the victim of that shooting until two days later when the same shooter shot six people killing four of them but Avi that's just one part of it because we heard testimony and there is mass a lot of turnover within within um, the department the, the, yeah. within that department yeah low pay low morale lack of adequate staffing, and this is causing major problems. I want you to listen. Maria Rodriguez mentioned her father suffering a stroke and calling 911 28 different times over the course of three days. Here's a piece of that testimony. Just so stressful thinking and knowing that, okay, he's calling, asking for help, living in his house alone, and not being able to get any type of response. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's it's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. And um, on the other side of that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I noted a quote from one of the folks who works in the radio room saying, you know, more or less like, you know, we get paid about $50,000 a year. I haven't had Thanksgiving with my family in eight years. Yeah, It's a tough job, a demanding job. The hours are difficult and the pay is not great. So you understand why there's a lot of turnover. And the consequences are that everyday people can't get help when they yeah. need it most. Yeah, and, and right now they have 290 workers, 350 spot for 350 spots, yeah. but they spend a lot of time training people, and you need training. These calls are sometimes yeah. traumatic, right? Absolutely. You Shootings can't just pick happening, up the phone. Yeah, yeah. crimes happening, so it's a pretty uh, serious thing. Um, something a little... A little lighter. So that's a problem <laughs> yes. in Philadelphia. Now yeah. a more positive view of mm-hmm. the city. We noted there was a it was kind of just a fun column in the British newspaper, The Telegraph, mm-hmm. which if you don't know, it's like a big London paper, kind of leans conservative typically. But there's a sports writer from The Telegraph who just wrote like a glowing piece about Philadelphia, Aww. calling it the only American city that feels sane. This guy loves that, Philly. That is a shocking statement <laughs> about Philadelphia. I just want to say that. But go ahead. I'm so sorry. So if you want to check it out, it's at The Telegraph. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting in part because I just, I'm always interested in how people from outside the country mm-hmm. view Philadelphia mm-hmm. when they come here and the way they describe the things that feel so second nature to us. Because mm-hmm. when you get like a sort of a step back uh, outside view of something that you're, you're really familiar with, it just, it makes you reconsider it. And so this column is filled with those. Uh, I liked the, I want to read you a couple phrases, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. <laughs> Cheese steaks are described as comprehensive meaty sandwiches. Mm. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that doesn't really sound delicious. I don't know. A Reading, Reading Terminal Market is described as a theme park for reckless lunch choices. 
I think that's kind of accurate, actually. That actually is yeah, pretty and accurate. A citywide special is described as a basic can of lager with a passable shot of whiskey. I liked all of that. I just I, I know you like a good turn of phrase. <laughs> I know you like a good turn of phrase. But they the sanest city in America. I did like that some of the good points about Philly here, like you know, um, make because we're walkable. Also, they mentioned Rocky, so you know, there are certain things that a lot of folks who come here kind of like. So you like that they mentioned? Yeah, well, you know, not really, but that's like I mean, a little level. bit. But that, but that's what a lot of people come here for. Every yeah. time I go past there, the people are standing in line. And I think the the broader point was basically that Philly. Philadelphia is mm-hmm. a city that still feels sort of brawny and American and has that typical skyline, but yeah. is still walkable in many parts and doesn't feel, I guess, sort of that it's um, gone as off the rails as some mm-hmm. other American cities. Because this guy was down on all the other American cities. Yeah. And he loved Philly. He loved Philly. And that's, yeah, I'm glad to hear somebody loves Philly because I love Philly. I don't know? love recycling in Philly. I, yeah. Um, and it's National Recycling Day. It is. And let me tell okay. you why you probably don't love it is because so many people are confused. 25% of Americans are confused about what can be recycled. That's according to a recent poll. So Billy Penn has done some myth busting for us. So what can be recycled or what can't be recycled? Products with the recycling numbers 215 can always be recycled in Philly. Paper that's easy products, to remember. That's the uh, I love that. Number. That's our 215. That's yeah. our area code. Paper products should be recycled. Pizza boxes Cannot be recycled. Those greasy pizza boxes, man. Every time I see them in the blue bin, and I have I'm more like, of those than it. I'd like to admit. So and that's you, good to know. And you should recycle dry glass bottles. But check out that story. It is a good story. Yeah, I do. Feel, uh, BillyPen.com. I do feel yeah. that any system that relies on people to memorize a long list of rules might be flawed. And by the way, mm-hmm. we might talk about that tomorrow on the show. The future of recycling yeah, and whether the system works. I, that's a good topic because I try to be, you know, conscious. There's so many rules. Yeah, so many it's, rules. It's impossible to remember them all. The you know, if you mm-hmm. move over the county line, it's completely different. Now let's move over yes. to our next story. 76ers forward Kelly Oubre Jr. was struck by a car in a hit and run last Saturday night. Oubre suffered injuries to his ribs, hip, and right leg. Police are still searching for the driver who fled the scene. But this incident highlights the problem of pedestrian safety in the city. 38 people have died from hit and runs in the city so far this year. That's an increase already from last year. The year's not over yet. So why are our roadways becoming more dangerous for pedestrians? And what is the city doing to address it? Aaron Moselle, the housing and community development reporter for WHYY's Plan Philly, has been covering this and joins us now. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, traffic safety advocates in Philly say hit and runs have become a crisis. Has this become a trend? Tell us what's happening here. Yeah, this is part of a a, a national trend uh, that we're seeing here in Philly where, you know, over the last three years, uh, driving has gotten really bad. Um, you may have noticed if you're out there either walking or biking or driving, um, people are speeding more, people are being more reckless. And here in Philly, that's resulting in a lot of people getting seriously injured and, and some people dying. Um, at a clip that we have not seen um, in some time and and certainly not um, going back before the pandemic. It it has not been this bad. So this is a high-profile incident recently, but unfortunately it's it's nothing new. That's right. That's right. Um, As you said, you know, last year we had almost as many people die in uh, in hit-and-runs, and the city, you know, continues to outpace other big cities in terms of traffic deaths in general, you know, hit-and-runs included. 
Um, like Chicago, New York, proportionally yeah. doing much better than us, right, Aaron? Much better. Much, you know, despite having obviously a lot more people, a lot yeah. more drivers, Philly's still outpacing. I think the only big city that slightly edged out Philadelphia was Los Angeles, and you know how much people drive in mm. LA. So mm. um, that's not company you want to be in. Correct. Yeah, interesting. And so let's talk solutions because I remember Roosevelt Boulevard had had all those hit and runs at a lot of pedestrian deaths, and there was some effort to kind of quell that. What has happened over there, and could that become a model? Yeah, what happened on Roosevelt Boulevard was a five-year pilot uh, to try and slow people down because that, uh, as many listeners know, is one of the city's, one of the state's most dangerous roadways. And the results that came back is that in putting speed, auto- automated speed cameras there on Roosevelt Boulevard has really made a big difference there, has slowed down folks dramatically, um, and has also been credited, the program's been credited with with saving a lot of lives. And so the hope is that a bill that's currently moving through Harrisburg will uh, extend and make that program permanent and also enable the city to install similar speed cameras around other uh, high traffic roadways in the city, maybe North Broad, maybe Kelly Drive, maybe um, Lincoln Drive, places where we see accidents all the time um, and that people are tired of it because it's scary out there. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in that answer that jurisdiction is an issue here because there's there's city roads and there's state roads and you need to go through Harrisburg to get make things permanent. What are some of the other holdups or issues or hurdles here to just implementing what seem like common sense reforms? Is it money? Is it willpower? Is it the fact that drivers might be inconvenienced slightly? I mean, what what are the barriers to progress here, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, money is definitely certainly an, uh, an issue, although there is uh, a lot of money at the federal level through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that has filtered down to various cities, including Philadelphia. There's money for uh, all kinds of traffic safety initiatives at the state level as well. So money is flowing. Um, there is a, a pretty hefty pipeline uh, for Philly specifically for those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, some of this stuff has to happen at the local level and city council. I think we saw, um, for example, on Washington Avenue, if folks are familiar, that you saw a plan that called for all kinds of street uh, infrastructure and, and traffic calming and devices in South Philadelphia. In South Philadelphia. Know, yeah. And you had one uh, councilman's district where the folks were yeah. with it, and he voted and, and put in the bills that were necessary to make that happen. And on the other half, on the other side of Broad, that didn't happen. And so you have kind of this mismatched uh, roadway. And, you know, depending on who you are, maybe you don't like it and you're happy that they didn't install them on your half. But Yes, it can come down to political will for sure. Mm. And 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 piggybacking on that, and we only have about a minute left in, in this segment. But sort of like, what is with this? We have a new administration, lots of new city council members coming. How could will this be a priority? Because there's a lot to talk about. But could we make this a priority? I think that's a big question here. Is if the Parker Sherelle Parker, who just got elected um, to be the city's next mayor, if she will continue uh, Mayor Kenny's vision um, to make this a priority with. Uh, the aptly named Vision Zero mm. program, which is really about making Philly's streets safer and eliminating traffic deaths in Philadelphia. You know that voice belongs mm-hmm. to Aaron Moselle, housing and community development reporter for WHYY's Planned Philly. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us yet again on Studio Two. You got it. Coming up, Cherry. Oh, let's yeah. Let's talk about the courts. You're I'm a court nerd. I am. A new code of conduct for the Supreme Court as public trust is at an all-time low. Call us with your comments or your questions, 888-477-9499, or you can email studio2 at whry.org. And they're already coming in, so thanks. We'll be right back. 
All rise or sit or drive or do whatever you're doing. This is Studio Two. We are in session. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Hear ye, hear ye. The nine <laughs> justices on the U.S. Supreme Court this week adopted an official code of conduct, building on a previous statement saying they would reaffirm and restate their commitment to ethics. This, of course, comes as polling shows many Americans have lost trust in the Supreme Court. And with revelations about Clarence Thomas and others that look like questionable ethics, to say the least. Now, there are still some issues Mm -hmm. with this new official code, like the fact that the justices are basically left to enforce it themselves with no oversight. So, you know, how effective will it be? Joining us now in our Philadelphia studio to lay it all out is Lisa Tucker. She is a professor at the Klein School of Law at Drexel University. Lisa, welcome to Studio Two. So it is so exciting this week because over the last several months, we've seen the public really get engaged with the Supreme Court. And this is my thing. This is (laughs) like my postseason. You are being Super Bowl. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, here in in Philadelphia with the Phillies, the postseason didn't go exactly as we wanted. We've been seeing that with the Supreme Court, too, over the last year or so. I think public trust, as, as one of you referenced, Really, we saw it take this huge hit, this huge dip, probably after the decision of Dobbs, which overruled Roe v. Wade. But then over the last several months, with all of these revelations about the justices going on these boondoggles and getting RVs that cost like, you know, several hundred thousand, like more than my house. Right. And the public going, what is that all about? And and so it was a pretty big deal for them. Really big deal. Because there has been an ethical code. Yep. Um under outside of public purview but now it's publicly available i want you to kind of give people an overview of what it governs yeah so it governs the activities of the justices it governs their their conduct that the public can see and chair you said you know there has been a code well they say there's been a code but there's mm-hmm. never been anything in writing that mm-hmm. governed the supreme court justices so things like what gifts can they receive where can they give speeches When do they have to recuse themselves, agree to not hear a case because maybe, you know, they own stock in a company or a family member is indirectly um, involved in it? Um, When are they allowed to, you know, when do they have to acknowledge conflicts of interest? Those kinds of things that are super important. Of course, the problem is that even though they've made this document now and said, here are the things we're going to do. Here are the principles that we agree to live by, canons, if you will. There's nobody overseeing them. So even though they say, yeah, we're going to do it, there are a lot of clauses in there that say, and of course, the justices will use their own best judgment mm-hmm. in order to follow this. So it's kind of like an honor code almost. Remember the honor code like when yeah. you were in college and you just had to promise? Oh my, but... yeah, yeah, my, my college had an honor code. Yeah. Mine did too. Yeah. 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 Was it followed? Yeah. Some of the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. Totally. But this, this is really big. And I want to bring in this email from Greg. Um, as we pointed out, as pointed out by a New York Times columnist today, the SCOTUS code of conduct is full of shoulds mm-hmm. where shalls belong. And their use of the word misunderstanding reflects their entitled sense of superiority over the balance of Americans, their intellectual 
inferiors. The underlying problem, Greg says, it appears is the arrogance of those with guaranteed jobs for life. Mm, um, not a lot Greg of Greg yeah. feels some kind of way about Greg this. feels strongly. Okay, so Lisa Tucker, is this going to move the needle on public opinion at all? Because I got to say right now, I'm looking at all negative comments. Yep. That's, mm-hmm. that's a self-selecting group. But yep. will this move the needle at all in the way that folks view the high court? I say, show me, don't tell me. I say, yeah, you can tell me you're going to abide by these things, but let's really see it happen in action. For example, Justice Kagan, um, she has been in favor of, of doing one of these codes, right? And recently, some of her high school classmates wanted to gift her with some bagels. I don't remember what it was for, but they wanted to give her bagels. And she said, no, I can't accept bagels. All right, so let's weigh this. Bagels, she's not going to take them. RV worth $500,000. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to take take that, that, right? So I think it's going to be the proof is in the pudding. Let's see what the justices do now. Do we see them stop doing this stuff? And one more really important point is that one of the duties they have is not only to be careful about being influenced, but also to disclose when they get these kinds of gifts. And hopefully we're going to see better disclosure coming forward. I mean, face it, Supreme Court justices are going to take trips. They're going to give talks places. They're going to be selling their books. That's normal. But Mm -hmm. disclose what kinds of perks you get when you do that. But if they don't disclose, the enforcement mechanism is zero, right? Right. What can we do? We can do nothing except impeach, and impeachment is an impossibility, both theoretically and with today's Congress, right? Yeah. Yeah. But this the public pressure has forced them to take this step. And I want to um, play a clip because some of the justices recently spoke in support of this code of conduct. Here is Justice Amy Coney Barrett at the University of Minnesota last month and Justice Elena Kagan at Notre Dame Law School in September. I think it would be a good idea particularly so that we can communicate to the public exactly what it is that we're doing in a clearer way than perhaps we have been able to do so far. It would help in our own compliance with the rules, and it would, I think, go far in uh, persuading other people that we were adhering to the highest standards of conduct. So, I mean, clearly they recognize that there has been this lack of trust that has been growing. What other tools besides this code of conduct does the court have to sort of rebuild trust? Because they're not politicians, right? They don't, you know, uh, shake hands and kiss babies. How are they going to rebuild this trust with the American public? Well, I think one thing that they can do is refrain from, even though the code doesn't require it, refrain from speaking at really, really um, transparently political events. Mm-hmm. Um, several particular particularly of the more conservative justices, have appeared, for example, at Federalist Society events. And that's the group that really influenced President Trump in his nomination process. Um, Another thing they can do is these disclosures. And I think another thing they can do is really assure the public that they care deeply about the concept of precedent and the concept of the rule of law, and that they understand that things that have been in effect for 50 years, 60 years, are things that the American public relies on, Mm. and that they're not just willy-nilly overruling. Ruth says, I am sad to say, but I think this move by Roberts is cynical, an mm. attempt to redirect attention from those who have behaved badly. As you said, the proof will be in the pudding whether they can change the opinions of folks like Ruth. But let me, uh, I guess, do an unpopular thing here and maybe defend the court a little bit mm. here. Justices live in the real world. They Absolutely. don't live on a mountaintop by themselves. They have mm-hmm. to 
take out loans and buy houses and make business transactions. And by the way, their decisions touch on basically every aspect of American life. Absolutely. And by the way, when they recuse, they can't be backfilled like lower court justices can. So realistically, what do you think should be the limits of recusal? when it comes to a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, and one of the things we worry about in the law is what's called the appearance of impropriety, mm -hmm. not just impropriety mm -hmm. itself. So what they need to be doing is thinking about how is this going to be perceived? They are called justices for a reason. They, they're supposed to care about justice. So if you've got a family member who has an interest, if you have you know a, a company that you have investments in, if this is an interest that you've done, a, a topic you've done a lot of public speaking about, Maybe it is best to say, I can't be objective here. Or even if you believe you can be objective here, perhaps the public might feel you can't be objective Optics here. matters. Optics matter so much. And I wrote an article a whole bunch of years ago, by the way, saying, why don't we use retired justices as those gap fillers? Hmm. Why don't we get Stephen Breyer back? Yeah. Why don't we get, you know, Justice Kennedy back? Just to make, recusal, back, just to make a recusal possible, yeah. right? Yeah. And I want to bring in this email from Susan who says the Supreme Court is broken and in some instances appears corrupt. Yet even when they try to police themselves and write a code of conduct, they do not include any consequences for themselves. So what? Total baloney. Baloney. Uh, oh, baloney. From yeah. that Susan says okay. that. And I got to ask People you this. People are not convinced. Yeah. Um, other courts do police themselves and they do have mechanisms. What could they have done based on? Could they have just made the chief justice the arbiter of this? And then. Could they then take that step if additional public pressure comes? Yeah, I don't know about that. The chief justice <laughs> is called the first among equals. Yeah. Mm. So he's equal and basically he just has to do all the administrative crap that nobody else wants to do, right? That's why he gets yeah. to be chief. The others are never going to cede that power to the chief. In fact, I was super surprised that after Thomas and Alito particularly objected to this code of conduct, as it's been talked about over the last several months, that somehow the chief managed to wrangle them in and mm. say, look, we're doing this. You guys don't have any choice. I hope that there will be more of a mechanism inside the court. And of course, it's such a secret chamber. We don't know what's going on. You know, I watch the court every day of my life, and I was shocked to see this drop on Monday. I had no idea, mm. right? Mm. So they're so secretive. But I hope that maybe they're starting to talk to each other and say, hey, bud, that wasn't the best idea what you did with the RV. Right. Or, you know, right. <laughs> why don't we say just... Self-awareness. Yeah, self-awareness and also listening to their colleagues. Yeah. Um, and people often say that the court works like nine separate little law firms, that they really <laughs> are their own little offices, right? But maybe that they can plant bugs in each other's ear and say, really, this is going to be benefit all of us if people trust us more. Uh, as you mentioned there, Chief Justice is not the boss nope. of the mm -mm. other justices. Nope. And as you said, likely never will be. We have about 30 seconds left. I am just curious, though, like the secretive part of it, the, the, the secretness of the court. They have a bat cave that it, they go it, into. Overall, yeah. in this modern society where we expect trans to see everything instantly, mm -hmm. can that sustain? We have about 30 seconds. Can you maintain that secretness? So far, so good. <laughs> we still don't and know. Be trusted, and be trusted, though. Yeah, well, that's the problem, yeah. right? The rule of law is a miraculous thing. The yeah. fact that the Supreme Court says to do something and we all actually do it is big. Yeah. So they got to think about that secrecy thing. Maybe cameras. 
What yeah. do y'all think? Interesting. We'll Interesting. shall see. Well, thank you so much. That thank is Lisa you. Tucker, professor at the Klein School of Law at Drexel University. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Speaking of the rule of law and trust, we're talking with NPR Steve Inskeep about his new book. It's all about Abraham Lincoln. Ooh. Stick with us. Welcome back, folks, to Studio Two. Hello. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. You're likely very familiar with the voice of our next guest, Steve Inskeep. He's the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. Recently, you may have heard his reporting from Israel, but he's also an author of several books on 19th century American history. His newest one takes on one of America's most storied and mythologized leaders, President Abraham Lincoln. It's not easy to pen a book about Lincoln. There are apparently, I did not know this, Mm 15,000 published Mm -hmm. so far about the 16th president. But this new biography titled Differ We Must focuses on Lincoln's political acumen and how he sharpened it through interactions and debates with some of his toughest critics. Like today, the 1850s and 60s were an incredibly divisive time in politics. Seven states had already seceded when Lincoln entered office. So there's lots to talk about here. And Steve is joining us now on the line to talk about President Lincoln, the politician. Steve Inskeep, welcome to Studio Two. Hey, thanks to be here. But you guys are, are th- thanks for the invitation is what I mean to say. But you guys are doing great. You just keep going. Keep talking about the book. You're doing great. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll take it from here. Steve, uh, n- thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next Bye. time. <laughs> I'm going to go get a nap. <laughs> and to our listeners, please send us your questions. And you can also call us 888-477-9499. Or you can email studio2 at WHYY. Org. So, Steve, we just laid it all out. So mm-hmm. many people have written about Abraham Lincoln. Before we dig into the substance of your book, what fascinated you about Lincoln such that you desired, not just desire, but also felt that you could actually add a different perspective to the historical record? Oh, that took a while. I mean, I've been interested in Lincoln since I grew up in Indiana, which is a place that he spent most of his youth. I mean, you get a lot of Lincoln propaganda when you grow up in, <laughs> in Indiana. And really, anywhere in America. I mean, he's such a revered figure. When you become a writer, then that becomes daunting Mm. for the very reason that you suggest. Like, what could I possibly add to what so many, what, to what Eric Foner has written about Abraham Lincoln or David Herbert Donald or Doris Kearns Goodwin? I could go on and on. What could I possibly add to this? Um, But I had written two other books about 19th century history, which began to make me feel that I had this body of knowledge that I might have a different perspective on things. And then I began digging into these individual meetings, these 16 meetings with with uh, people who differed with him in different ways, different races, different genders, or above all, different opinions and different backgrounds. And I discovered people I'd never heard of, meetings that I had never uh, heard of, or in some cases, famous meetings that I'd read a paragraph about, but I didn't really know the full story. So I kept discovering new th- things that were new to me, at least. We're going to get into some of those 16 interactions, which is the framework of the book, a little later. But you mentioned there, Steve, Lincoln propaganda. And I Mm -hmm. do think we want, in some Mm -hmm. ways, to view him as a saintly figure, a moral crusader, and not as a politician. Where do you think that impulse comes from? 
Oh, well, I mean, it, it comes partly from the, the story that he was part of and the national story that he was part of. Uh, I mean, Lincoln grew up in a time when, when many more people were much more overtly Christian than now, when there's a much greater diversity of religion, although Christianity, of course, is still the, the dominant religion in this country. And there are parts of Lincoln's story that, that are almost Christ-like, this man who suffered and died that his nation might live, mm -hmm. that he was assassinated just at the moment of the victory of the Civil War, that he was present for the creation in many ways of the country as we know it, that he took a role in reshaping the Constitution itself to create a multiracial democracy and, and played a big role in expanding the federal government. We could go on and on. He's just part of the American story again and again. And so we naturally want him to be a perfect figure, a saintly figure, a great figure. Um, and, and many people lean into that. It almost seems rude to mm. criticize the guy after he's been assassinated. Although I should say there is today a different pattern of Lincoln thought. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, 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 that you, you, depending on where you go to school, where you get your information, you may learn that Lincoln was a bad guy, that Lincoln was a racist, that mm -hmm. Lincoln said unpleasant things. And a lot of that stuff is true. He said a lot of things that just by definition were, were racist. But he was on his way to this political goal, and that's what I tried to figure out. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting about your book, Steve, is that you write that Lincoln was a pretty skeptical about people and he saw them as selfish and usually taking action in self-interest. I want you to sort of like explain how he grew up and the the situation that he grew up in that that created this kind of point of view and prepared him to be this skillful politician that did all the things you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, he, he grew up, uh, he was born in Kentucky. Uh, and then moved when he was very young with his family to southern Indiana, which it's the early 1800s. This was the frontier. And when he was seven years old, his father handed him an axe and said, now you get to help me clear the trees off of this land that we have just claimed. And it was, by our standards, by our perception, a, a cruel and rough existence. It was a land that had just been, the, the Indians after which Indiana is named, after whom Indiana is named, had just been driven away recently. Mm -hmm. And there were white settlers coming in and creating what was to them a new world. Uh, and it was backbreaking labor. Lincoln then spent the next 15, 16 years with an axe in his hand doing different kinds of manual labor. He was very young when his mother died. Uh, his mother then was replaced by a stepmother who brought along a bunch of siblings that he had to get used to. It was, by our standards, a very difficult life that he himself summarized as the short and simple annals of the poor. He had to educate himself. He had to pull himself up in the world. But during all of that time, he was observing other people. Mm. And just as you said, he did conclude that people acted out of self-interest, that even if they said they were acting out of patriotism or love or altruism, that there was something in it for them. And in a way, that's not a bad insight. I mean, we, we do act in our own interests, and we have to. If you don't look after yourself, who's going to? So he knew he had to deal with people as they were, that if he was going to appeal to them politically, he had to take into account their self-interests. And he tried to align that interest with moral goals, with higher goals, which is how he ended up trying to assemble a coalition or play his role anyway in assembling a great coalition against slavery. As part of that coalition, you write that Republicans, this is the nascent Republican Party, needed people whose views Lincoln considered repug repugnant especially and in including 
nativists. And yeah. you talk about one named Joseph Gillespie, who oddly yeah. enough was the son of Irish immigrants, um, but was himself an ardent nativist. And um, Lincoln tried to court them in Illinois, not all that successfully, but what did that chapter tell you about Lincoln? This is one of the most important chapters to me in the book. I'm glad you brought it up. And one of the most relevant to now, because we, like Lincoln, live in this big, diverse, free country where people have lots of ideas, and lots of the ideas that people have are to us horrifying. Whoever we are, whatever our politics, there are people on the other side, you just can't believe that they believe that. Um, And Lincoln was trying to, in a big, diverse country, assemble a coalition against slavery where people had a wide range of views. I mean, we see it as black and white. Slavery is obviously wrong. And maybe there's a handful of people out there who still think that it's right. I don't know. But in the 1800s, there were lots of people who said, well, slavery is wrong, but here's my rationalization for why I don't need to care about it or I shouldn't do anything about it or why it would actually harm me and my interests to make it go away or it's impossible to deal with. And so Lincoln had to work on people to get them together on this issue he thought was important. And he had to get past their views on other issues that he found horrifying. He felt that the nativists who were rising in popularity at that time were so horrifying that he said, if they ever gained power, I'd rather live somewhere else where they Mm. don't pretend to love liberty. And nevertheless, his friend Joseph Gillespie was someone who commanded voters, who had who had supporters. He was a fellow politician. And that's a reality that we face now, as Lincoln did then, that even when somebody is wrong in a democracy, they still have the vote. And so you have to account for them. You have to deal with them and try to build a majority. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln ended up campaigning with this nativist guy, Gillespie, and appealing for Gillespie's supporters to vote for him, Mm -hmm. but tried to keep his integrity by not pandering to their anti-immigrant views. He just talked to them about slavery. Mm. Very interesting. I mean, Lincoln was able to um, get people to vote for him who he totally disagreed with. And he he throughout his political career specifically as president was in a very precarious position on one hand he wanted to keep the union together on the other hand he thought slavery was unjust and wanted it to end and balancing the two was like walking this tightrope um steve can you walk us through critical points in his evolution from being the guy who sort of keeps his feelings quiet about slavery right to the man who then issues the emancipation proclamation and if there's a couple of critical points if you could just focus in on those yeah yeah i mean i'm also thinking more broadly i mean people talk about lincoln as this character who grew and changed during his lifetime I'm not sure that I think of it exactly the same way. I think Mm. that he would say that he responded to circumstances. Um, And that's what I get at or try to get at in these 16 meetings. He's dealing with a person who's difficult. And how can he deal with that situation? And how can he deal with the next situation? Slavery was such a thing. Before the Civil War, he felt that the Constitution and the laws that supported slavery were so strong, there was nothing you could do about it practically. So his goal, as was true of many other anti-slavery people, was restricting slavery, containing it, stopping it from spreading. And even when he was elected president and southern states who were threatened by his election began trying to leave the union, he did not say, well, I'm going to free all your slaves now. He tried to keep the union together and even tried to keep people who supported slavery in the union Mm. if they would do it. He needed in that way to reach out to people he disagreed with because he needed a majority for the union. 
Finally, however, he reached a point where he felt strong enough that he could issue the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring freedom for the enslaved laborers of rebels who could then be brought north and be converted as they were freed into Union soldiers. And he got to that point by using people who didn't even agree with that goal. I mean, he, mm. he, he managed to... He, restored to command this general, George McClellan, who didn't agree with him about slavery, but at least agreed about the Union. And he got a victory out of McClellan at Antietam and used the springboard of that victory to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which is a way that he would use people who disagreed with him to, to achieve a higher goal. McClellan, by the way, from Philadelphia, yes. does come off yeah. as kind of a jerk. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, a lot no, of jerky I, I just want to say that's one of the other kinds of kinds of differences here. I mean, yeah. we talk about race, d d differences personality in race differences, and, yeah. and, and personality, and also class. He was yeah. an elite guy from an elite family who had an elite education, and Lincoln was none of those things. And I think McClellan uh, looked down on him, and oddly enough, was also a little insecure around him. Yeah. We are speaking with Steve Inskeep, uh, you know the voice, co-host mm -hmm. of NPR's Morning Edition. We're talking with him about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. One anecdote from the book, Steve, I wanted to bring up. Uh, this is just after Lincoln has won the presidency and he's having like office hours, basically. Mm -hmm. And this guy from Mississippi comes in who's like clearly supports secession. And yeah. Lincoln ends up signing a book for him. <laughs> and it, it was one of those things I realized, oh, Lincoln wasn't just a compromiser in politics. He was like conciliatory in everyday interactions. Do you think that actually mattered at all for his success? Oh, I think it mattered a lot. And it matters a lot to me, strange to say, that Lincoln kept his door open to all kinds of people. Uh, you, you give an incident when he was president-elect. He even did this as president. He worried his aides because he allowed so much of his time to be eaten up by common people who came and wanted their husband, women who wanted their husband let out of prison, soldiers who wanted their back pay, random people who were accused of desertion from the army and asked for the help of the president. He would see these people. And I think that that represents what the presidency is supposed to be. Mm. It's not supposed to be a king or an emperor or somebody who's so much greater or better than the rest of us. It's somebody that we have chosen to represent us for a minute or for four years <laughs> and and who is not supposed to be someone we work for because they work for us. Yeah. They serve us. And I do feel that for all of their other flaws, a lot of the earlier presidents had a keener understanding that they were working for the people. One of the interesting meetings, I have to mention Frederick Douglass a little bit because uh, Frederick Douglass went to visit Lincoln at, yeah. in Washington and he had been very critical of um, the president and uh, but when he left after that meeting, he wrote that uh, the president's approach was, quote, reasonable and called Lincoln wise, great and eloquent and above all honest. That's mm -hmm. that's a true politician. But you can get somebody yeah. who mm -hmm. was criticizing you day after day, saying you too slow. I mean, what, what were your thoughts on Lincoln's yeah. ability to sort of not just Frederick Douglass, but other people sort of shift people's mindset when it came to what he was doing yeah. and how well, he let's was think, making things happen. Let, let's think about what Lincoln was honest about in that meeting. This is such a great meeting with such a great figure. Douglass came to Lincoln in 1863 and basically said, thanks very much for the Emancipation Proclamation. You were super slow getting around to that, but that was a good one. Now you're enlisting Union soldiers in the Army, and I, Frederick Douglass, am serving as a recruiter. I've been getting these guys to sign up. I've been promising them equal treatment, equal pay, equal promotions, equal 
benefits and you have failed. You've made a liar out of me. You're not giving them equality. They're not getting equal pay, for example. And that's what Lincoln was honest about. He said, I understand that that is wrong. And here is the political reality that forces me to be slow about getting around to that equality. I'm struggling at every step to get these black men recognized as equals. There were white men who didn't even want them in the same uniform Mm -hmm. as white men so that there wouldn't be even an implication of equality. Mm -hmm. I'm taking this step by step and I'm working on it. And that's what he admitted to Frederick Douglass that he was honest about with Frederick Douglass. And Lincoln also did the necessary next thing, having admitted that there was something in federal policy that was unjust, he went out and tried to fix it. He argued publicly for equality, and he also ultimately signed into law equal pay for black men. I want to spin this forward to the president, mm-hmm. Steve, um, because I felt myself doing some maybe media criticism and self-reflection while hmm. reading this book, because I do feel like political deal-making is often framed as shady mm-hmm. or immoral or underhanded. So do you think we need a new paradigm for how we talk about, you know, like the art of politics? And if so, what is that paradigm shift? Oh, I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, honestly. I mean, it's one of the things that motivated me as I shaped this book. Um, I mean, I want it to be about the past, but you think about the present. It's a conversation between the, the past and the present. And it's exactly right. I mean, think about something that happened recently in the House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy, the late speaker, former speaker of the House of Representatives, did a deal with Democrats to do business to keep the government open, which is a normal thing that a political leader would do. And a lot of people on his own side found that horrible and unbearable because you're supposed to win 100% for your side all the time. And if you fail to win 100% for your side all the time, uh, that means that you're a loser, you're a rhino, or whatever. Depending, and there, there you can find uh, you, you can find similar things on the Democratic Party. The parties are not the same, but they 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 do have this tendency. Um, and McCarthy lost his job over yeah. it. And and the, the idea of democracy, at least as Lincoln tried to practice it, is not that you get perfection, but that you get all you can today. And The nature of democracy is why that would be. We are equal citizens in a republic. It is a free society where we will have many different ideas of what is right and wrong, and we have to negotiate that. Lincoln's conception of the Declaration of Independence, the line that all men are created equal, he knew the Founding Fathers didn't fulfill that. But he said, this is an ideal that is never perfectly attained but can be constantly approximated in ways that add to the happiness and well-being of people of all colors everywhere. His idea was get everything that you can today and then next next year there's going to be another election and let's see what we can get after that election. Let's see what we can get in the future and keep working at it. Democracy is not a perfect state. Democracy is a process. And Steve, we only have a couple more minutes in this segment, Um, Mm -hmm. but I got to ask you, I mean, you know, there were technological advances uh, at the time of Lincoln. The telegraph came around. We're dealing with social media and the 24 hour news cycle. What would the type of advice, what would Lincoln say to the politicians of the day if if he were to try to give advice on dealing with some of our flashpoint topics? Then it was slavery. Now we have a, a laundry list. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think he might start 
by saying to a lot of people, uh, you don't really need to comment on that. <laughs> you don't need to post that tweet or that X or that whatever it is, that thread. You, you just don't, you don't need to speak out on every single issue. Reserve your fire for the things that truly matter. And I think he would probably encourage people to think long-term, which is a related thought. He was thinking of the arc of history. He was aware of how hard it was to truly change things and, and was mindful that he was picking up a baton from previous generations generations. And that's that's a great thought. And I think it's one that applies to a lot of big problems we have today. Nobody is going to save solve climate change tomorrow, just to give one example. Nobody is going to uh, figure out artificial intelligence or the U.S. rivalry with China in a minute. So let's think long term and try to have some confidence in yourself and in the people that maybe you don't persuade everyone of your approach. Maybe you don't persuade everyone to be long term, but you don't have to persuade everyone. You need a majority. And I think the question that hangs over the whole book for me is, could a Lincoln-esque figure mm-hmm. find similar success today? We don't have quite the time to answer that right now, Steve, but um, that is the question for me moving forward and perhaps one our listeners can meditate on as well. Um, thank you so much, Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition and author of Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. That book is out. Thank you so much for the time, Steve. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for our show. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer for today. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. We'll talk to you tomorrow.